Romans chapter 15. I'm going to try to make it through the whole chapter. It's a little bit long, but I think we can do it. Um, I'll talk really fast this morning. No, I won't do that. Just kidding. I won't do that. Just by way of reminder, in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul instructed us on how to deal with those believers who are weaker in the faith. In other words, they're not as mature. And specifically when it comes to those areas of Christianity where Paul called them doubtful things or gray areas of Christianity, where the Bible's not clear on what exactly is right and what exactly is wrong. We, Paul made it very, very clear that we're supposed to be tolerant of one another when it come to the, came to those areas. And he gave us a couple of examples last week. He talked about food and how some people were only eating vegetables because they didn't want to possibly by mistake eat eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And other people were esteeming or holding one day higher than another. And Paul will tell us, you know, when it comes to those weaker or the new believers, he told us a number of things. He listed out a number of things for us. Number one, he said, receive them. Receive that new believer. Receive that one who is weaker. Receive that one who might not be as mature in the faith as you or as somebody else. And he told us also not to dispute with them. Don't, don't get into senseless arguments with them. It's not, it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth hurting the relationship over, over a senseless or a silly argument. And he also told us not to despise them. He told us not to judge them. He told us not to stumble them in our freedom. As a, as a mature believer, you might realize that you have a lot of freedoms in Christ, but just because you have a freedom, you don't exercise that freedom if, in fact, it's going to stumble your brother or sister or cause them to sin. He said, be careful you don't stumble them. And he also told us to pursue those things which make peace with them pursuing peace with them rather than the church dividing and separating over these non-essential things and again it's 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 gray areas of christianity he said pursue peace with them and he also said to edify them to exhort them to lift them up and now as we come to chapter 15 paul is going to continue with that very same line of thinking remember the chapters were put in the bible much later they were put in there to help us reference but it's not like paul stopped writing for the night and put his pen down and then woke up the next morning and started writing chapter 15 it all probably worked together well paul wasn't actually writing it in this case someone was writing for him but you get the idea the chapters and verses are so that we can reference them but this was a letter that was written to the believers in rome that was meant to be read at one sitting so you can imagine if I was to sit here and start reading all 16 chapters to you, you'd go, oh, I'd get lost. Not them. They wouldn't. This, 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 was, this was something they would grab onto, they would hold onto, and they would be moved by it. And we've taken our time studying through it because we didn't want to miss anything. And we've been, we've been moved by it as well. So this morning, let's look at chapter 15. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll come back and start talking about it. Chapter 15, verse 1. We then, who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Again, just like in the previous chapter in 14, Paul implies there are strong Christians and he implies there are weaker Christians. There are mature Christians and there are immature Christians. Which one are you? How do you tell which one you are? Because we talked about it last week, oftentimes the weaker Christian thinks they're the stronger Christian. Oftentimes it's the other way around. The stronger Christian has the more freedom, but he chooses not to use it. And the weaker Christian can tend to be legalistic. But Paul made it clear to us here, there was two attributes of believers who were strong in their faith that he listed out there in the first verse. He makes two things very clear to us. He says, number one, they will bear with the scruples of the weak. He said, we, we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. If you're a mature believer, you will be bearing with the scruples of the weak. What does that mean? 
What's the word bear mean? It means this. It means to continue to bear up under unusually trying circumstances and difficulties. It means to endure. It means to pick up. It means to lift up. Yes, the new believers are going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Yes, you're going to sit down with the immature believer and you're going to share with them in your, in, in, out of the word of God certain truths and they're going to hear it, but they're not going to live it. It's going to go one ear, out the other. You're going to go, you're not, you're not getting it. That's because they're weaker in the faith. And he's saying those of you who are strong, you need to bear alongside. Be patient with them. Keep ministering to them. You know, that the mature believer realizes God's doing his thing. And scruples just by way of definition, is it's, it's their weakness. It's where they fall short. You know, not that we all don't fall short and all have certain weaknesses. But a mature believer doesn't have a problem letting people grow in the Lord in the Lord's timing. Letting the Lord work in their life. Letting the Holy Spirit convict them. Letting the Holy Spirit move them in the direction that they should be going. They don't always need to run around correcting everybody. They don't always need to run around imposing their own convictions on everyone else. This is the mature believer we're talking about. The ones who are strong in their faith. A strong believer is content in letting God be God. Letting God work in their life. Letting, letting God do the work that he started. Because doesn't he promise to finish the work that he started in somebody's life? And he doesn't need you to do that. But he will certainly use you if you will let him. He will certainly use you. Bearing with the weaker Christian, it's like taking a walk in the park with a two-year-old. If you take a two-year-old for a walk in the park, you don't expect them to walk at your pace, do you? No, you slow down to their pace. You slow down to that, the speed they're going. And you know what you do? You stop and you look at everything they find interesting. Because they're going to stop and look at things that you're going to blow right by. And you stop and you meet them right where they're along the way. You meet them right where they're at and you walk. But you also use that walking time to point things out to them. You use that time to caution them. Use that time to educate them. Look at this tree. Look at this plant. Don't touch that poison ivy. You would, you would teach them certain things. And Paul said, this is what it's like walking with, as, as a mature believer walks alongside of a new believer. Slow down to their pace. Teach them. Let them mature. Let God do the work. In contrast, the weaker or the immature believer, they want to bring everybody in line with their thinking, don't they? They want everybody to live just the way that they want. They want everybody to walk at their pace. They want everybody to keep up with them. They want everyone to do it life just the way they're doing it. They tend to be very legalistic. They tend to be, well, this, this is something God's doing in my life. Now I want you to do it in your life. Not allowing God to do it. You need to do things just like I do, they would say. You need to get up in the morning and pray the way I do. You need to do devotions the way I do. The fellowship. You need to be just like me. I've got it down. You need to come up to where I am spiritually is what they would say. And then Paul's saying, listen, the stronger believers, why don't you come on down? Why don't you bear with those who are growing up in the faith? Why don't you walk alongside of them? It's interesting, the weaker believer usually believes he or she is the stronger believer. Because they might hold the deep conviction. They would look at the stronger, the more mature believer and go, ah, they just don't get it. No, they get it. They've already been where you've been. They've walked that and they've realized it's not that important that God will be God and God will work in everybody's life just the way he sees fit as much as they will allow him to. You've got all of the Jesus in your life that you want. Think about that. You've got all of, the, all of Jesus that you want is exactly what you have in your life. There's more to be had, but you've, got, you've only got what you want. There's more available to you, but it's going to require you to mature and to grow and to study the word and to, to grow that way. 
You see the immature believer, they're focused uh, on pleasing. Oh, the second, the second area here, Paul said for the mature believer, the first one is they bear with the scruples of the weak. The second thing he says, they're focused on pleasing others. Wow, that's not natural, is it? Naturally, we want to please ourselves. The stronger, the more mature believer, they've realized it's not all about me. Life doesn't revolve around me. It's, it's about other people. It's about God's plans. It's what God wants. Their focus becomes on pleasing others, pleasing the Lord, rather than just simply pleasing themselves or pleasing their own flesh. They've realized when I seek to please someone else, when I put my neighbor before me, when I do these things, I'll be edifying my neighbor. I'll be lifting them up. I'll be bringing them closer to the Lord. I'll be ministering them, them in, a, in a way. And in doing that, they realize I'm building myself up because I'm living the way God has called me to live in accordance with his word. You see, the weaker believer wants to please himself. And in doing so, they usually end up tearing down their neighbors. They usually end up tearing down those people around them rather than building them up. All too often, Christians find it easier to tear each other down instead of building each other up. Get your eyes off of yourself. Start looking at other people. Start building them others up. You'll find yourself gets built up in the process. A strong, mature believer will bear with the scruples of the weak and will seek to please their neighbor, knowing they will be edifying their neighbor in that process. But this is nothing new, is it? Paul's been teaching this. Jesus certainly lived this. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So I ask you this morning, are you a mature believer or are you an immature believer or are you somewhere in between perhaps? You see, the truth is we're probably all somewhere in between there. And sometimes we act mature and sometimes we act immature. That's the way we are as people. But what Paul gave us was two characteristics in our life that we can certainly work on to help us mature in the Lord. Do you bear with the scruples of the weak? And are you putting your neighbor to please your neighbor before yourself? That's a question between you and the Lord to answer. And if he knocks on your heart and says, hey, this is an area I want you to grow in, praise the Lord, he's speaking to you. He wants you to grow. And I would encourage you to conform with that. Now, as we come to verse 3, Paul reminds us that he's not asking us to do anything that Jesus didn't already model for us. He's not asking us to do anything out of the ordinary. It might not be common for our culture. It might be something that doesn't come naturally, but it's something that Jesus modeled for us. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul here quotes Psalm 69.9. It was speaking prophetically of Jesus. Think about that. He came to earth to bear our burden. Jesus came to earth to bear my burden and to bear your burden. Do we need to go any further than him for an example? He, he gives us a perfect example of someone who forfeited his own freedoms, forfeited his own rights and privileges for the good of other people. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to, and he willingly did it. Jesus gave us an example so we could walk in his ways, but he certainly isn't the only example in Scripture. Perhaps the best example, but he's not the only example in Scripture. Look at verse 4. For whatever things were written before... He's talking about the Old Testament here. For whatever things were written before were, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When it comes to examples, Jesus is certainly at the top. 
He leads the pack. But a quick survey of the Old Testament provides numerous instances, lots of opportunities where people were willing to forego their own freedom and their own comfort for the sake of others. A couple off the top of my head, Noah, Joseph, Moses, Daniel, all bypassed the easy road and chose to live their lives as an influence for God and for the good of other people. And their impact was worth the sacrifice because we read about them today. And the lives of them in the Old Testament are still impacting us today. This, if nothing else, should be an encouragement to study the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament, to learn and see the lives of the men and the women in the Old Testament and let that impact you. Too many churches camp out only in the New Testament. They never really get to the Old Testament. Do you realize 77% of the inspired word of God is the Old Testament? 77% of it. So if you only read the New Testament, you only camp there, you don't study in the New Testament, you're only getting, do the, do the math, 23%. 23% of the inspired word of God. Too many churches camp there. The stories, the pictures, the types, the principles, they're all for our benefit. They're all to help us grow closer to the Lord. They're all to teach us. There's a lot that a New Testament believer can glean from the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what Paul's saying here. As we come to verse 5, it's as if Paul realizes we need help in this, and he breaks it out into a prayer. And he asks the Lord to help us. Look at verse 5. <coughs> now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives us very two important attributes of God and he gives us two very powerful prayer requests. The two attributes that he talks about there, he's the God of patience and the God of comfort. The God of patience, those certainly aren't his only attributes, but that's how he wants to be known, the God of patience and the God of comfort. Remember that the next time you think God's fed up with you. The next time you fall into that same trap over and over and over again, you think, well, God certainly must be done with me. Certainly he's ready to zap me from heaven. He's had enough with me. No, he's the God of patience. And the God of patience gives you what? Comfort. The God of patience and the God of comfort. They're not his only attributes, but patience and comfort are two things, two very important things that describe our God. He's patient, and he wants to comfort you. Isn't that amazing? Difficult situations, trials in life, hardships, financial troubles, loss of a loved one. God says, I'll be there with you. I'll comfort you through that. Will you let me? I'll be there with you. I know, I know you've had a rough week. I know, you, I know you did things and said things and acted things. I know you didn't treat your husband or your wife. I understand that, but it's like, I'll be patient with you. I'll be patient with you. If he's telling the mature believers to be patient, how much more patient would God be? with those of us that are weak in the faith. Sometimes I can be a knucklehead and you can be a knucklehead and we can do things and the Lord says, that's okay. I died for that. It's still, my, my blood still covers that sin. That's okay. You hang with me. Don't, don't give up. Stay here. That's amazing. That's the God that we serve. Not that we're perfect, but he says, I'm patient with you. I'm, I'll comfort you. But also, there was two prayer requests. I see them as prayer requests there that Paul made and they seem to be the same thing, but they're, they're similar. But I want you to look closely. The first thing he says, I want you to be like-minded towards one another. Like-minded. Not divisive. I want you to be unified. The idea is to be of the same mind. Christians should be of the same mind. When believers are like-minded, it doesn't mean they believe exactly the same things. 
Because we talked yet last week about these gray areas of Christianity. It doesn't mean they agree on everything. We talked about this. But what it does mean is the things that matter, the big things, the doctrinal foundational of Christianity things, the things like the Bible being the inspired, the word of God. Salvation is through faith alone. Jesus is God's son. The church is God's arms and legs to spread the gospel. We should be able to agree on those things. We should be able to come together and be unified on those things. <coughs> Excuse me. When like-minded, when we're like-minded, it brings us to a place corporately where we can worship. It brings us to a place where we know that we can come into a place and these people are like me. They may not be exactly like me. There may be some differences here and there, but we're on, on the big things, on the things that matter. We, there's, there's, they're mature enough to know we can stand next to each other and worship. We don't need to divide the church over something that doesn't really make a difference or something that's not that important. Notice it brings us to the next thing. Paul prays for this, that with one mind and one mouth, we would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for corporate worship. He's praying for like-minded corporate worship. I believe it includes prayer there. He's praying for the church to come together and worship. Listen, you can worship in your car, and you can worship on your couch, and you can worship in your basement, and you can worship in all kinds of places. But there's something special when God's people gather together on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night or a Wednesday night or whatever night of the week the church is meeting, and they get together and they worship the Lord together. There's something special when our church gets together on Sunday night and, and we have you know, 20 or so of us, 25 of us getting together to pray on Sunday night. You can pray anywhere, but when you come together to do these things corporately, it's almost, it's almost if it has more power. It's almost, God said, oh, my people are together. Think about a dad looks down, oh, my kids are together. They came to hang out with me. Not just one or two, my whole family came to hang out with me. Think about how that moves on God's heart. That's what corporate worship and corporate prayer brings. It's not a waste of time. It's very, very powerful. We pray for our radio station every week, and we see the impact it's having on our community. We see it clear. I can't tell you. I couldn't list the number of prayer requests that have been answered through our Sunday night prayer. It's amazing. When the like-minded people of God come together to worship their Lord, there's something very special that happens. It works the same way with prayer. You can pray anywhere, but I'm convinced when we get together, when we come together in this place to pray or to worship, there's something very special about it. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. When you gave your life to Jesus, God received you with an open arms. When, when you, the day you said, I believe on Jesus, Lord, forgive me for my sins, he said, I'll receive you. He, there were no conditions placed upon it. There were, he didn't say, all right, just don't do it again. There was no, no strings attached, if you will. When the prodigal son returned home, the father ran down the road to meet him. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and he welcomed him home. The father didn't hold him at arm's length until he had proven himself. He, didn't, he wasn't placed on probation until he proved himself to be worthy. He was given full membership and accepted back into the family. He didn't have to wait 90 days for benefits to kick in or anything like that. <laughs> He'd come on in. Dad was waiting for him to come. He recognized him coming from afar off and ran to meet him. That's the way the family of God should be with those new believers and even with those believers who are immature, who have slipped away, who have been away for a while. When someone's been away from the church for a while and they come back, you know, there's a tendency to go, oh, where have you been? What happened to you? I haven't seen you in like three weeks. Where have you been? 
No, it should be welcome back. We're glad to have you back. You know, it's, it's not about attendance. Attendance records will not get you into heaven. Relationship with the Lord is what's going to get you in heaven, believing on Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Way back in chapter 11, Paul talked about God's plan for the Jews and for the Gentiles, both coming to Christ, that it was his will that both be saved. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior, and now Paul's reiterating this point to us, and he's going to give us four Old Testament scriptures to prove the point that Jesus came for the Gentiles also, because there was still some Jewish people who didn't believe that. They thought, no, he's our God, he's not their God. And Paul, again, wants to make it clear one more time, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 say this, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's Paul quoting Psalm 18. In verse 10 it says, And he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43. Verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you people. That's Psalm chapter 117. And finally in verse 12, And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. That's out of Isaiah chapter 11. Paul quoted, and this is interesting, Paul quoted from the Psalms. Paul quoted from Deuteronomy, and Paul quoted from Isaiah. Do you recognize and realize that those three places represent the three areas of the Jewish and the Hebrew scriptures? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. All three of them, Paul is saying, are speaking of Jesus coming for the Gentiles. Not just for Israel, but coming for the Gentiles. It all represents the same thing. Paul saying, listen, it's been very clearly foretold in the Old Testament. I believe it was a mystery that was hidden to the Jews until Paul brought it to light. It didn't come, they, they didn't see things unfolding the way that they unfolded. It wasn't what they had planned. Now, verse 13, Paul says, Now may the hope, or may the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope. What is hope? What is hope? Hope is the absolute expectation of something that's good that's coming your way. If you are expecting, it's the absolute expectation, it's something good is coming your way. He is the God of hope. When we have hope, we can be filled with joy and peace, regardless of what our circumstance is, regardless of what area we're living in, regardless of what's going on in our life. When we know there's something good coming from the Lord, we can be filled with hope. Essentially, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Paul essentially here, well, let me say it a different way. When you think of hope in the scriptures, and you think of hope in Christ, your mind should be drawn to the return of Jesus Christ. As I study the scriptures, as I see it, I've found the greatest hope is connected with the return of Jesus Christ. That's what everybody's looking forward to. Because the only hope we have is this world. What kind of hope is that? Well, someday I'm going to get old. And someday I'm going to get sick. And someday my loved ones are going to pass away. And someday I'm going to lose my job. And someday I'm going to run out of money. That, that's not hope at all. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you hope. Because someday you're going to live with me forever. If you're a believer in my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you hope that the world can't take away from you. I'm going to give you hope that even when you die, it's just a doorway into my eternity. I'm going to give you hope that nobody can steal away. So if you wrap it all together, Paul's saying this. It's silly to argue over these stupid little things. Instead of arguing over somebody who's an immature believer, come alongside them. There's something more important happening. Jesus is coming back. 
He's coming back for his people. Don't let this stuff sidetrack you and railroad you. Again, he just spoke about non-essential doctrines. He called them doubtful things. He called them gray areas of Christianity. I'm not speaking about ecumenicism where we bring all churches together. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking about these areas that divide Christians. uh, And I mentioned a bunch of just tattoos. Are they biblical or unbiblical? Who cares? Let's focus on Jesus coming back. Let, that, let the Lord convict you on that and let, some, let the Lord convict somebody else on that. That's what I'm, those are the kind of things that I'm focusing on here. Not, these, not, not salvation, not you know, the doctrine of grace or things like that. Now, verse 14. Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, brethren. You can kind of tell he's winding down here. That you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another goodness filled with knowledge i like that admonish one another the word admonish what does that mean what should we do if we're admonishing one another it means to we're we're reminding one another or we're cautioning one another we're cautioning one another we're reminding when you see a brother or a sister stray from the word of god or you see someone whose life might not be going in the right direction full of goodness and full of knowledge we can then admonish them we can caution hey you need to be careful you need to be careful there's something creeping up in, your, in the business world and you're not doing business like a believer should be doing business. But that shouldn't come in a prideful and arrogant sense. It should come out of love. It should come out of knowledge. It means you have the right information. You're not just pointing the finger at somebody. It should come with the heart to bring somebody back to correction and bring somebody to the Lord. Now, I will encourage you. This is not biblical, but it's something I've practiced in my life. Before I sit somebody down to admonish them, I will spend no less than 30 days praying for them every day to make sure it's something the Lord wants me to talk to somebody about in their life. Because I realize when I have to sit somebody down, whether it be a friend or a family member or something like that, that the very moment I sit them down, that might end our relationship because they might not receive it. And I have to be confident, and you should be too, that this is something the Lord is leading me. I am the one the Lord is bringing to try to bring them back to the word of God. And I would not do that until I've spent some serious time in prayer. And I check my heart to make sure it's right, that it's not a prideful or an arrogance thing. It's something I really see that, hey, the one I love, the person I love is moving in another direction. And here's what I've come to find in my own life. Oftentimes, the time I spent praying for him, God fixes the problem before I ever have to sit down with them. Because there's power in that prayer when you pray for somebody. If you'll commit to pray for somebody for 30 days, you can almost guarantee their life is going to change. And you will pray for them every day. You will see things happen in their life. And if you, have, if you see something, you will be amazed at what God does. I can't tell you, there's been many times in my life where I've done that. And I've said, all right, I see something in somebody's life. And I start praying for them. And before long, God does something in their life. He didn't need me to do it. But I got to pray for it. I got to watch the prayer requests get answered. And the relationship ends up being built stronger because now I'm praying for them every day. I'm not getting frustrated with them. I'm not getting burned. By them. I'm bearing with the scruples of the weak. I'm bringing them back in. I'm receiving them like the Apostle Paul said. Now, verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points and reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the thing which pertained to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. This was a wise policy Paul had. This was a wise thing. Paul doesn't speak about subjects he's not experienced personally. He says, the Lord has accomplished all of what I'm teaching. He's accomplished it in me. 
He's done it in me. His preaching didn't go far beyond his practice. It was, he, it's, it was the way he had, Lord had worked in his life, the way he had lived his life. The same should be true of us. There are certain things, certainly truth is truth, but it's, it's hard to speak convincingly of a truth that you haven't received. You see, if I don't receive from the Lord when it comes to the scriptures, I have nothing to give out. Every, every Saturday for me is spent seeking God on the scriptures and praying and preparing a Bible study for you guys. If I don't receive something from the Lord, if the Lord doesn't say, this is where I want you to focus, this is what I want you to say, this is what I, this is, this is what I want for you, I've got nothing to give out. You don't want my opinion on this stuff. You'd be better off to go somewhere else. But I can promise you that on Saturdays and throughout the week, I'm seeking God. And I'm praying, I'm saying, Lord, what do you want me to give out? And I can tell you the person who gets convicted the most in this church is me. Because I have to live with this text. You hear it Sunday morning for 45 minutes or so. I hear it all week long leading up to the message. You're teaching it on Sunday, I hear, Rob. You better make sure you're living it. You see, I hear it all week long, but you guys only hear it for a short time. But it's a wise, a wise policy, Paul says here. It's hard to speak convincingly of a truth that we've never tasted and known firsthand. If you want to be a minister of the Lord, you need to let the Lord minister to you. Because when the Lord ministers to you and he changes your life, then all of a sudden you've got something to give out. Let me tell you what God's done. Let me tell you how God's working in my life. Let me show you the verse that God showed me this morning. And it's amazing how that works. All you're doing is giving out what you've taken in. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. You're just an empty vessel that he fills up and he'll overflow it. You have all of Jesus that you want in your life. You have all of the word of God that you want in your life. You have it all. There's more to be had. There's, there's a lot more to be had. There's a lot more for me to be had. Pray for me that I would have more of it. But we have all that we want. And I, my prayer that we never have enough. That we're always realizing, I need more. I want to go back. I need more. I need more. It's also important to notice that Paul taught in word and deed. He said he taught in word and deed. Word and deed. To many, too many people speak of Christ with their mouth, but they teach a different message with their lifestyle. Too many people proclaim to be Christians, and then, they look at, and then you look at their lifestyle and you scratch your head and go, I'm not sure. I've said it before. I'd rather someone not be a Christian if they're going to live that way. You're making the rest of us look bad that are trying to live right. Just, just don't even tell anybody you're a Christian. Just, just stop. If you're going to live a sinful life after the flesh, just don't even, just let, let the Lord keep working. That's okay. He'll still work. But don't go out and proclaiming you're a follower of Christ when the Lord will look at you and go, I don't see that in your life. You see, the Christian should see a change in his life and her life. It might not be a lot. It might be just little changes along the way. Oftentimes, those are the most profound changes. Changes a little bit here and a little bit there. And a little, don't get discouraged by what I'm saying. A little, little changes are what we're looking for. Oftentimes, the big changes, maybe you've met them, the person that comes to Jesus, and all of a sudden, their whole life changes in one night, and you meet them six months later, and you're like, what happened? And they're like, oh, it didn't work out for me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people that go to the Lord and say, Lord, I see there's something wrong in my life. Will you work in that? Will you do that? Will you, will you, through the Holy Spirit, will you help change me and bring me to where I need to be? And then when we look back, maybe in a, in a look back over our life in a week, and we don't see much difference. But we look back over a year, or two years, or five years, or ten years, and pretty soon you go, I've been walking with the Lord a long time, and I'm not the same person I was back then. I'm a new creation, and God is working to perfect me in his grace, in his love. That's what we want to be. He goes on to tell us about the Mighty signs and wonders that are accompanied his ministry as he preached the gospel of the Gentiles, verse 19. And mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricon, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so 
I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to those he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard, they shall understand. Paul had a heart to reach the unreached for Christ. He, did, he, he didn't want to build on another man's mound's foundation. He didn't want to take the church down the road and take the people from it. He said, I want to do something different. I want to build, I want, I want those people who have never heard of Christ. I, that's who I want. Let, it's the same thing for our church. I look at this, how does this apply to our church? As a church, let's meet needs that aren't being met. That's what we're here to do. You know, there was no Christian Bible teaching radio station that was teaching the word of God the way our radio station was doing before we did that. That's our, our, our church does that. You're, you support that. You know, people think, oh, the radio makes money. No, the radio costs us money. You guys that support the church, you're, that's your radio station. You keep that on the air. That's a need that wasn't being met in our community before we did it. So it's something that we're blessed by, and many, many believers have written and called and told us and stopped by what a blessing it is. But even as we continue for the next thing, we don't need to look and copy what somebody else is doing. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, how do we meet this need? As a church, one of the things we're praying for is the heroin epidemic. Lord, what can we do as a church? What can we do? What, what, what do you want to do with our fellow? Is there something we can do as a fellowship that would help out, reach out to those maybe few people that say, you know what, I'm, I'm addicted to heroin, but I want to get off. We don't want to, we'll support other people in their endeavors, but we don't need to copy them. If they're, if they're doing it well, let's just come alongside and support them. We don't need to just to, to, to do it over again. And that's what Paul's saying here. I'm not looking to build on another man's work or build on another man's foundation. I'm looking for those things where things aren't being done, where God isn't, where Christ isn't being preached. <clears throat> He's writing this letter from Corinth. And he has a desire to visit Rome. He's been planting churches as he's preaching the gospel. And he writes this in verse 22. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first, I may enjoy your company for a while. It seems as though Paul had his sights set on going to Spain, and he plans to stop off in Rome and visit the church there, the churches there, the house churches that were there along his way. Look at verse 25. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed, them, sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. It seems as though some of the Jews in Jerusalem were going through a difficult time financially. And some of the Gentiles, realizing that God was the God of the Jews and now through Christ was Jewish and that, that, that what the heritage that they now hold comes through Judaism and through the Jews, they want to give back. They want to help pay. So it seems as though Paul has made a collection and many of these Gentiles have given financially to the Jewish people that are in Jerusalem. And Paul is now carrying this financial gift back to Jerusalem for them. I want to just draw your attention to verse 27, the last half. 
For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them in material things. It's a biblical mandate that we minister or we give back to those things or those places that are feeding us spiritually. Certainly this applies to the church. It can apply to the radio station or to radio ministries or any kind of ministry that is feeding you. And I believe first you should give to your home church and then you should give outside of that to wherever the Lord would lead you to give. But the best place to look to give is where am I being fed spiritually? We want to support those things. It's, it's biblical there. We're not sure if Paul ever made it to Spain. We don't really know. Church history says he might have. It, it can't be very clear. But it seems doubtful because we know what happens when he, when, he, when he shows up in Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 30. As Paul begins to close out this section, this chapter, he asks for prayer. He says, Now, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. Notice Paul didn't want to go in his own will. He wanted to come only by the will of God. And that I may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Notice Paul says, strive, strive. Will you strive together with me in prayers? This is not just, hey, will you throw up a prayer once in a while? The word strive means to fight alongside or to join fervently. This is not, hey, will you remember me at your dinnertime prayers? Will you remember me, you know, at your bedtime? Paul's saying, no, I need, I need some, there's some things I need prayer for here, and I need you guys to strive with me in them for prayers. It's not just a casual, you know, hey, thank you, know, Lord, help Paul. This is, this is, I want you on your knees praying for me. And notice his prayer request. There's three prayer requests. Number one, he prays for protection. He prays for the safety, for his safety from the unbelievers. Number two, he prays for acceptance. His ministry would be acceptable to the believers in Jerusalem. Number three, he prays for travel to Rome, that I may travel to Rome and see you where we would be refreshed by the will of God. He prays for the will of God to allow him to go to Rome and be refreshed with the believers there. So we know that Paul went on to Jerusalem like he, did, like he had planned to do. But were these prayer requests answered? It would be a good time to look and say just for a moment, hey, what became of his trip to Jerusalem? Were these prayer requests answered? Was Paul protected when he got to Jerusalem for the unbelievers? Sort of. Yes, he was protected. The unbelieving Jews, if you remember correctly, tried to kill him. They tried to take his life, and his protection came when he was taken into custody by the Roman soldiers. You see, was he protected? Absolutely he was, but it wasn't like he expected. He found himself in the custody under arrest by the Roman soldiers soldiers in the Roman guard but the Lord used his incarceration for protection for him protecting him from the very people yes that's an answer to prayer request number two was he accepted yeah he was he was accepted even Peter would later declare and tell 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 the believers in second Peter chapter 3 verse 15 to listen to what the apostle Paul had to say but there was some controversy that always surrounded Paul I don't know that they ever really fully thought they could trust him because of the life that he lived before but yes he was accepted did he make it to Rome? You bet he did, but not like he expected. You see, Paul wanted to go to Rome and be refreshed with the believers. He wanted to stop off in Rome on a trip to Spain. But how did Paul make it to Rome? As a prisoner, in chains. 
He made it to Rome as a prisoner, but it was in chains that he showed up in Rome. He prayed for protection, he was put in prison. He prayed for acceptance, and it was granted. He prayed to go to Rome, and he got an all-expense-paid trip from the Roman government. <laughs> Sometimes when we pray, our prayers are not answered like we expect them to be answered. I'm sure that Paul had full intention of going to Jerusalem, ministering there, and dropping off the financial gift, and heading on to Rome, and on, on over into Spain, and, and continuing his missionary work. But the Lord had other plans, and Paul was okay that, for he would write, later write, I've finished the race. I've finished my course. I've completed what God has given me to do. He understood that his life didn't revolve around his ideas and his plans. Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And Paul understood that. And sometimes when we pray, our prayers are going to get answered. And they're not always going to get answered the way that you would expect them to, that you would like them to. I remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified. Remember what he prayed? He said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass me by. Take it away, Lord. If there's any other, if, if there's any other way to save mankind, will you do that, Lord? If there's anything else, if there be any other way. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. You see, that's the heart of a mature believer when they come to the Lord in prayer. Nevertheless, Lord, here's what I want to see happen. Here's what I want to see you do. Here's what I'd like, I'd like for you to do. And, but Lord, I know you're God and I'm not. I know your ways are so much higher than my ways. I know that you can do things that I, I don't even see happening. You can, you can orchestrate things. You can, you can cause whole armies to flee. You can cause the sun to stand still. You can call, cause the Red Sea to part. You, got, you have power that I can't even dream of. You see, the mature believer says, Lord, let your will be done. We pray in accordance with your will, not ours, Lord. That concludes chapter 15. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 16. But before we conclude our service, I would like to, as always, just take a few minutes I find that when we just run out of here, sometimes it, we don't have a moment for the Word of God to rest in our heart and for the Lord to kind of speak to us personally. So we're going to take two or three minutes, if you would, would just go before the Lord in prayer on your own. Nobody's going to pray out loud. No one's going to come up. There's going to be nothing to see. Close your eyes, bow your head, and you seek the Lord. And you say, Lord, is there something in today's message that you want to convict me with? Is there something in today's message that you can encourage me with? Lord, will you show me what I need to take away from this message? And as we take these two or three minutes, I believe the Lord will meet you there. Maybe you need to finish jotting down some notes. Maybe you already know. Maybe it's just a time, thank you, Lord. You've shown me some areas in my life that I need to work on. Maybe you, I thought I was mature, Lord, but I just realized I'm, I'm, I'm immature. I'm that legalistic person that he was talking about that, that wants everyone to conform to me. You know, praise him if he reveals those kinds of things to you. It means he's working. He promises to complete the work in you which he has begun. So let's just take two or three minutes before we close. Um, I'll be up here. Also, if you need prayer for something and you want to pray with myself, Rebecca, my wife will be here. Uh, come on up. We'll be glad to pray with you over the next couple of minutes. Uh, don't be afraid. We'll be glad to sit, uh, pray with you quickly. It's not a counseling time, but we'll just pray for you. And uh, the rest of you, just go before the Lord quietly and say, Lord, this is a few minutes that I want to sit quietly before you and have you speak to me. So, Father, here we are. Our eyes are closed. Our hearts are opened. May you have your way in our hearts. May you minister to us in a way that only you can. Lord, may you fill us so that we can give out. And may you speak to us now. Bring back the words of Romans chapter 15 to us. And show us 
where we need to grow. Go before the Lord quietly now.